This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, journalist Yvonne Roberts on the value of small talk, writer Amina Sena sits down with former Nickelodeon actor Jeanette McCurdy to discuss her explosive new memoir, and finally, columnist Hadley Freeman has an out-of-body experience with 90s throwback-turned-psychedelic guide Patrick Cox. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we bring the world together. Our aircraft connects communities, facilitating cross-cultural communication. Our satellite technology enables communication across the world and allows us to explore space, expanding human knowledge to create a better future on Earth. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at Airbus.com. Before we begin, just a warning, there's some bad language in this episode. Now, exchanging pleasantries for just four minutes can leave a lasting impression and affect future social interactions a recent study has revealed. But with this vital form of communication under threat, it's time, says Yvonne Roberts, to master chit-chat. Read by Colleen Prendergast. The golden rule of small talk, as anyone who has worked behind a bar can testify, is don't say what's on your mind. Rule two, avoid any reference to politics, religion, money, death, health and sex. The price of a pint and the weather are safe bets and can be discussed in idle chat night after night, often with the same regularity as if never mentioned before. No confrontation, little harm done, nothing given away. Or so it was once thought. Now economists Professor Daniel Segroy and Neha Bose from the University of Warwick have conducted what they think is the first study of its kind, putting 338 individuals through an IQ and personality test before placing them in pairs to play two money games in which the extent of cooperation affected the outcome. The study found that just four minutes of passing the time with a stranger can give away key aspects of personality, which, in turn, influences later behaviour. Small talk matters, they conclude. In their paper, the academics quote an example of two diplomats engaged in week-long negotiations that are progressing slowly until, on the Wednesday, one chats to the other that he needs to be home by Friday to attend an opera with his wife. 
Immediately, a connection was formed on two fronts. A shared dislike of opera and a shared interest in keeping spouses happy. The pace picked up and the diplomat went home as scheduled with a signed agreement in hand. The study divided the 338 participants into two groups. One group could text with a partner for four minutes. The other group had no communication. The participants were then asked to guess aspects of their partner's personality and predict whether they would act cooperatively or selfishly in two games. Personality types were divided into extroversion, which the academics describe as having sociability, enthusiasm, tempo and vigour, projects positivity, and neuroticism, described as negativity, high emotion, fearfulness, hostility, impulsivity, insecurity and self-consciousness. And, one would think, not much given to chit-chat. The pairs who had earlier made small talk scored more highly on predicting their partner's IQ and answers to the personality test and the extent of their contributions in the games, with little difference between the genders. In even a few minutes, we will start to form a mental model of the person we are talking with, explained Segroy. Are they extroverted or introverted? Do they seem upbeat or downbeat? These sorts of impressions won't be perfect, but they will be useful. Yet, small talk, whether directly useful or not, is under threat. The pandemic placed it in temporary incubation as we all stayed home. But now, where is it most likely to take place? In queues, bus stops and on public transport, among other venues. What's often stopping it? Smartphones don't help. Not only do they offer hours of isolated entertainment, gossip, several hundred holiday snaps, Instagram, spats on Twitter and much else. Unless a person is actually conducting a conversation, a phone, unlike small talk, has no requirement to listen or engage. As Studs Terkel, the great chronicler of American life, once wrote, we are more and more into communications and less and less into communication. Does it matter? In the 1980s, Anna Devia Smith spent years asking a range of people their responses to three questions, not to be recommended as a catalyst for small talk. Have you ever come close to death? Do you know the circumstances of your birth? Have you ever been accused of something you did not do? In her book, Talk to Me, she said her aim was to listen between the lines, to dig deeper than the surface. Listening has a value. Chatting to a stranger you may never meet again may not have an outcome of the kind described in the Warwick study, but it can leave a lasting impression. A little human engagement may help to change a mindset stuck in a darker place or inject humour at a time when it's otherwise in short supply. As columnist Maeve Higgins wrote in the New York Times, idle chat gives you connection. Some idea of that odd-shaped part of a human being that's invisible to the eye and impossible to articulate. That was Call It Trivial, But We Still Need to Master the Art of Small Talk by Yvonne Roberts. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Next, the former child star Jeanette McCurdy quit acting in her 20s after years spent trying to meet the impossible expectations of her mother. 
Here she meets Amina Sena to discuss the truth about her past in her newly released trauma memoir, I'm Glad My Mum Died. This article includes references to child abuse and eating disorders, so take care when listening. Read by Arazu Baker. In a strange sort of way, Jeanette McCurdy's mother, Deborah, is getting what she'd always dreamed of. Fame. Never mind that the title of her daughter's memoir is the brilliantly punchy, I'm glad my mum died, or that it details Deborah's controlling and abusive ways. She'd be like, my name's on a number one New York Times bestseller, says McCurdy laughing, but not recognising, mum, I don't know if people are loving you exactly. McCurdy is a child star who walked away from her career in her early 20s, something she could only do because of her mother's death. Since McCurdy was six years old, Deborah had shaped and controlled her, turning McCurdy into a successful actor. She was on the hit show iCarly on the US children's channel Nickelodeon and its spin-off Sam and Cat. Every aspect of McCurdy's life was micromanaged, from who she was allowed to see to what she ate. The restricted diet led to eating disorders. Deborah would even wash McCurdy in the shower until she was 16 and touch her vagina and breasts. Deborah had been diagnosed with breast cancer when McCurdy was two and said she was checking for lumps and shave her legs. Becoming a famous actor was Deborah's dream, not McCurdy's. When McCurdy, as a child sitting in the back of the car after a bad audition, tells her mother she doesn't want to do it anymore, Deborah is enraged. She was driving, so it was on my part poor timing. She remembers with a laugh. She started screaming, tears flowing down her face. She immediately went into hysteria, which was how she often met resistance. And I felt then, this is not an okay thing for me to bring up. If her mother's behaviour reads as abhorrent, then the world of children's TV doesn't come across much better, with child stars having to cope with maniacal showrunners and gruelling auditions. There's a general feeling that it isn't a healthy place for young people working out who they are. Last month, Alexa Nicholas, another former child actor, took part in a protest outside Nickelodeon's studio in California, claiming that child performers were not safe on shows made by the channel. I try to talk about everything from a personal point of view, rather than something more systemic, says McCurdy. I absolutely think that there are a lot of harsh realities to child and teen stardom. McCurdy grew up in Garden Grove, a small city in California, with her parents, grandparents and three older brothers in a Mormon family. They didn't have much money. Her father worked for a kitchen design company and her mother sometimes worked shifts at Target. Although her main job, McCurdy writes, was ensuring I make it in Hollywood. Deborah's moods and behaviour were erratic and everyone was frightened of upsetting her. Added to this, the possibility that the cancer might return hung over the family. McCurdy was homeschooled and had no friends, which meant she didn't realise until later how dysfunctional her home life was. I did feel like an outsider. There was layer on layer of shelter, she says. Being homeschooled, being Mormon, being a child actor and working in a world of adults. I considered myself a second-rate Mormon. I wasn't as good at being Mormon as the others. I didn't have school friends and then in acting, a lot of the moms can be competitive so they don't necessarily want the daughters talking to one another. When Deborah signed McCurdy up for dance classes, 
14 a week to improve her chances, she did make a friend and got the chance to see another type of home life. It was one of my earliest memories of registering what I couldn't identify then as dysfunction, of my families operating on a different frequency. What about other adults around her? Her grandparents, father, people at church? Couldn't they see how harmful Deborah was? My mom seemed hell-bent on keeping up appearances. She did a pretty good job of portraying that she and I were best friends and that we were inseparable. At home, she says her grandparents and father would plead with her to get help. She would throw McCurdy's father out and make him sleep in the car, scream at them or throw something. The louder it would sound when it broke, the more likely she was to throw that object. She gives a small laugh. She never sought help, never worked on any of her stuff. I completely empathise with mental illness. But the fact that she didn't try to change it, that's a more complicated feeling for me. Throughout McCurdy's childhood, Deborah put everything into making McCurdy a star. She whitened her teeth and tinted her eyelashes. She hustled for agents and managers. Worst of all, when McCurdy showed signs of puberty, Deborah taught her calorie restriction and managed her diet to keep me infantilized. She was panicked at the thought of her daughter growing up, but there was also professional motive. If McCurdy could play a younger age, she would get more roles. Because you can work longer hours on set and you can take direction better. Instead of feeling trapped and manipulated, the dieting felt to McCurdy like bonding. Like, this is great. Mum and me are helping each other with our diet plans. I didn't realise the reality. Getting roles in commercials and in TV series, McCurdy was not only on her way to fulfilling her mother's dream, but financially supporting the family. iCarly, broadcast between 2007 and 2012, became a huge tween hit, and her role as the tomboy sidekick to the main star made McCurdy famous. It was, she says, frightening. I had been such an overprotected, sheltered kid with quite a bit of social anxiety, and then to be recognised any time I walked out the door was overwhelming. I grew to resent fame. It was my mom's wish for me. It was never the thing that I had set my sights on. She also realised that it hadn't made her mother happy, which is all she'd ever wanted. I thought that that would solve everything. Then I reached the thing that she wanted for me, and she seemed not only unhappy, but she suddenly became jealous of me for having it. I think fame was the first thing that really conveyed to my mum that she and I were separate people. We were so enmeshed and I think she really saw her identity in me. Working on the show was not, for McCurdy, a happy experience. She writes about the man she calls the creator, taken to be showrunner Dan Schneider, and the fearful atmosphere she says he created on set. Over-the-top complimentary one moment, verbally aggressive the next. She writes that he fired a six-year-old on the spot for messing up a few lines on a rehearsal day. At one point, when McCurdy was 18 and the prospect of her own spin-off show was being dangled, she writes that the creator took her for dinner where he encouraged her to try alcohol for the first time and gave her a shoulder massage. She wanted him to stop, she writes, but was so scared of offending him. There were parallels between him and her mother. Here was another adult she had to tiptoe around, to please. Absolutely, she agrees. Another thing about being a kid in that world is there are a lot of really domineering figures. When she left Nickelodeon, 
she was offered a $300,000 goodbye, on condition she didn't talk about her experiences there, which she declined. Schneider left the channel in 2018, after an internal investigation found he had been verbally abusive. The experience of performing as a child, seen through McCurdy's eyes, is mainly a damaging one, especially when it comes to auditioning. I was not psychologically developed enough to understand that rejection doesn't mean you're not worthy. It just means you don't fit the role, she says. I couldn't separate those two things. Once she had made it, there were other pressures. It's led me to have complicated feelings toward any child acting experience. She thinks it would help simply to have somebody on the child's team. There's agents and managers, network executives, and sometimes recording labels if the kid's also doing music. All these people that, even if they have the best intentions, at the end of the day are making money off this child. If there was somebody who was there strictly for that child's well-being, it would make a difference. Even if it is handled very carefully, inevitably being a child star is not a normal adolescence. When McCurdy got her first period, she was working and the news got around the cast and crew. She had a first kiss on set. In front of a camera crew, directions being yelled at her. All these firsts are happening in an unreal environment. There's this point where the question becomes, what's reality, she says. The worlds bleed into one another, and it requires a lot of unpacking after the fact to understand what the fuck just happened. For McCurdy, the next few years would be dominated by eating disorders. Anorexia, then bulimia which got so bad she lost a tooth from the vomiting. She drank too much and had dysfunctional and sexually imbalanced relationships, kept secret from her mother until paparazzi pictures of her on holiday with a boyfriend appeared online, and her mother sent her an apoplectic email. You used to be my perfect little angel, but now you are nothing more than a little slut. A fat one too, she added. More emails followed, each more hostile until Deborah told McCurdy that she blamed her for the recurrence of her cancer. It had returned a couple years earlier, when McCurdy was 18. At the time she was pursuing, she says with a laugh, a much-regretted country music blip. A common path for child actors. McCurdy's co-star on Sam and Cat was Ariana Grande. Deborah's illness meant McCurdy went on tour without her. It was their first real separation. There was a feeling of relief that I couldn't or didn't want to come to terms with at the time. Because God, did it feel shitty to feel relief that I'm going to be away from my mum for the first time, when my mum also was just diagnosed with cancer and was dying. It made me feel like a terrible person. Deborah died when McCurdy was 21. The opening scene in her book is darkly comic. McCurdy trying to rouse her mother from a coma in intensive care, with news of the only thing that could possibly make her rally. That she is down to her tiny target weight. Her death was devastating. I genuinely felt I had no identity without my mum, says McCurdy, who is now 30. I didn't know who I was. I felt terrified, incompetent and incapable. Eventually the process for me was realising that those feelings were her conditioning. That was her voice not mine. But it took a long time to get to a place where I could identify that I was an am, 
glad that she died. When the first therapist McCurdy saw raised the idea that Deborah had been abusive, McCurdy was furious and never saw her again. It was an idea that I couldn't tolerate. My world was seen through this lens of my mum wants what's best for me. My mum is everything and I am nothing without her. The idea that she was abusive would mean reframing that and everything about who I was. She began to come to terms with it later, while being treated for eating disorders. Therapy, she says, was hugely helpful. And solitude, I spend a lot of time alone, really tuning out everything. Leaving acting, she was in a short-lived Netflix drama, and her related social media presence was a way of distancing herself from an identity Deborah had created for her. I see it now. My identity started when my mum died, she says. She worked towards forgiveness for several years. I remember one conversation with my therapist where I said, when will I get there? What's it going to take? I was trying to justify her behaviour or make sense of it or empathise with her. My therapist said, what if you don't need to find that forgiveness? What if, in trying to find forgiveness, you're still doing your mum's work? It was really what I needed to hear and felt like a tremendous weight lifted. When McCurdy wrote her memoir, which had its origins in a small one-woman show, she had largely come to terms with her experience. She didn't want it to be a way of working through my trauma. She wanted to write a more objective, entertaining, darkly funny book. It is, and more. Before her own dreams were squashed out of her, she had wanted to be a writer, but her mother's view McCurdy reports, laughing at the memory, was that writers get big watermelon butts and actresses have cute little peach butts and I want you to have a cute little peach butt. Writing the memoir, she is also working on a novel, has allowed her to simply miss her mother or at least some aspects of her. I used to really have a complicated relationship with missing her. I'd miss her, then I'd feel angry and that she doesn't deserve for me to miss her. She abused me. How do I still have love for this person? It was a deeply confused form of grief. And now, I'm able to just miss her. Deborah got her dream. At great cost. But now, so has McCurdy. That was Jeanette McCurdy. It took a long time to realise I was glad my mum died. By Amina Sena. Read by Arazu Baker. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we've included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we're at the forefront of new technology. 
We're redefining the aerospace industry by using disruptive technologies and new energies to reduce our environmental impact. Okay, thank you very much. We're bringing the world together, collaborating, and acting on climate change. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at Airbus.com. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, the celebrity shoemaker Patrick Cox was a fixture of the 90s fashion scene. Then, after the collapse of his shoe empire and his mental health, he found salvation. Hadley Freeman went to Ibiza to discuss the very unlikely source. Before we dive in, this article includes references to substance use and suicide. Read by Colleen Prendergast. This morning in my garden, I picked literally kilos of tomatoes. What am I supposed to do with kilos of tomatoes? Asks Patrick Cox, once one of the most famous shoemakers in the world, as he drives me to his home in Ibiza, which he shares with his beloved pit bull, Titus. It's got solar panels and a well, so I'm pretty much completely off-grid, which is the dream. Once this would have been Cox's nightmare getting up at 5am to do the gardening. When I was 30, I'd have been like, what the fuck is wrong with you, he says, and makes one of his bend forward at the belly big laughs. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, Cox, now 59, was shoemaker to the moneyed through his high-end Patrick Cox line and the masses with his cheaper mega-selling brand Wannabe, whose chunky loafers became the defining footwear of the era. Spindly stilettos by Manolo Blahnik might have made more appearances on Sex and the City, but at their peak, wannabe loafers sold one million pairs a year. Cox's handsome, impish face was frequently photographed at all the A-list parties. He was Elizabeth Hurley's plus one on the red carpet, best friends with Elton John and David Furnish. I was the last one every night to hang up my disco shoes, he says. He wasn't nicknamed Party Pad by Janet Jackson for nothing. Then, suddenly, he seemed to disappear. Out of the blue, he emailed me this summer and wrote that he's working on a documentary about his new life as a toad facilitator. A toad what? Cox himself would have once replied. A toad facilitator is someone who helps people while they smoke toad poison also known as 5-MeO-DMT, the strongest hallucinogen known to man. I know, it's such a cliché. Patrick moves to Ibiza and becomes a shaman. But I am not a shaman, and never will be. I just want to be part of something that is helping people, he says. Helping them to smoke toad poison? I am aware of how ridiculous it can seem, but I don't care. It's my first day in Ibiza, and Cox has kindly picked me up from the airport to spare me the taxi queue. When I last saw him 15 years ago, he was wearing a smart suit. Despite being Canadian, Cox always dressed like the nattiest of Englishmen. Today, he's wearing a button-down shirt with a magic mushroom print and loose tie-dyed trousers. Welcome to the Tobemobile, he says, 
as we climb into his bright green jeep. Instead of his once signature brogues, he is wearing a pair of multicoloured slip-ons, made out of, he says, old carpets. Did he change his wardrobe when he changed his career? Ha! My friends ask that, but I've had a lot of these clothes for 20 years. I'm just putting them together in a different way now, he says, with a cackle that punctuates most of his sentences. Cox lost his eponymous shoe line in 2007 due to various business shenanigans. We went into kind of like this bankruptcy state. It gets very technical, he explains. Suffice to say, there was overexpansion, a new CEO and an investor who ended up taking over the company. Then I got hit by a car and spent six weeks in hospital. It was bad, 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 he says. He'd already lost Wannabe a few years earlier when the Italian factory where the shoes were made ended up being taken over by the mafia. I didn't go back to that part of Italy for a few years, let's just say. <laughs> in his small but very pretty home in Ibiza, there are occasional mementos from the glory days. Photos of old friends such as Kylie Minogue and Natalie Imbruglia, pictures in the bathroom of him with Elton John, Elizabeth Hurley and the Queen. That was from some event called something like Canadians of Note, when Canadians who had made a contribution to the country were invited to the palace. David Furnish and I were like, who besides us will be there, he says. A lot of Canadians who work in the Foreign Service turned out to be the answer. But in the main, his home feels blissfully far from the frenetic London world he once lived in and loved. Cox moved to Ibiza in 2017, and he has resisted the usual decor clichés of the island. Instead of wind chimes, he has 18th-century plaster casts of ancient Greek friezes on the walls. I bought them in the south of France with Elton, he says. For the first time, I managed to get something before Elton got them, because shopping with him is insane. You see something you like, and he's already bought six of them. Outside... Titus sleeps in the sun. Despite Cox's previous aversion to gardening, he has a garden that verges on Eden-like behind his house, with orange and lemon trees and rows of artichokes, courgettes, onions, carrots. It looks like absolute paradise, I tell him. Well, if you'd come in 2018, you'd have found me lying on the floor where you're standing now. I was crying, beyond depressed. I couldn't even stand up. I was completely desperate, he says, then takes a pause. Let's sit down, because this will take a while. And, for the next several days, we sit on his terrace and we talk. Cox was born in Edmonton, Alberta, and his childhood was complicated. His father worked as a teacher overseas, and by the time Cox was eight, he had lived in Nigeria, Chad and Cameroon, with moves back to Canada in between each posting. In 1971, Cox's mother left his father, and when she landed back in Alberta with her two young sons, she discovered her husband had cut off all their financial support. Cox went from living in relative luxury in the Southern Hemisphere to being a latchkey kid in a two-room basement in Western Canada, and he wouldn't see his father for another decade. His mother struggled to cope. He is now on good terms with her and has made efforts to re-establish a relationship with his father. He left home as soon as he could at 17 
a gay, disco-loving, fashion-obsessed teenager already looking for the party. He moved to Toronto and from there to London to study shoe design in 1983. His progress through the British fashion world is like a snapshot of the 1980s London-style scene in all its ramshackle glory. He first worked for Vivian Westwood after meeting some of her employees in the bathroom of a club. He made moccasins by hand for the influential label Body Map and then worked for John Galliano after they bonded at the now legendary 80s nightclub Taboo over a shared love of Madonna. We did the whole like a virgin routine, and John was always Madonna, and I was always one of the backing boys. He launched his own label when he was in his mid-twenties, and it did pretty well, selling around 3,000 pairs a season. But when he started Wannabe in the mid-nineties, he went stratospheric. Before he had to work in his own stores to keep them going, but now he had to hire doormen to keep the crowds at bay. I knew Elton because... He came to my store and bought more shoes than anyone I've ever met in my life. Elizabeth came to my store. And these people are still my best, best friends, he says. If you were even vaguely interested in style in the late 90s and early noughties, Cox seemed ubiquitous. He helped to fund the magazine Wallpaper, which was created by his then-boyfriend, Tyler Brulé. He had stores around the world adverts in every magazine. He was friends with everyone because he was fun to be around, and he still is. In all our time together, we drink nothing stronger than water, but he never runs out of energy. Always full of, OK, now this is really off the record, anecdotes. I can't even imagine what he was like when he was still, as he puts it, partying. Does he mean partying in the euphemistic sense? Yeah, yeah, cocaine, drinking, let's blow that euphemism apart, he says. But despite his success, he was riddled with self-doubt. I always had this voice in my head that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't know what I was doing. Even when I won Accessories Designer of the Year twice at the British Fashion Awards, I thought, well, they made a mistake. Did that voice come from his parents? Yeah, telling me that I wasn't good enough, Look, this isn't some sob story. I had an amazing time. Until it stopped. When Cox lost his labels, he had a breakdown. He became so agoraphobic he couldn't leave his house in West London, and when his PA eventually dragged him to therapy, he clung desperately to the lamppost in the road. Ever since I was four, I felt like I had to please everyone trying to prove to myself that I wasn't as worthless as I knew I was. And then it all collapsed. Who even was I now? He says. He had been single since breaking up with Brulé in 1997, because how can you love someone when you can't love yourself? He went through the Hoffman process, an intensive seven days of therapy that participants are not allowed to discuss afterwards, but Cox sums it up as, you prosecute your parents. They patched him up enough that afterwards he was able to dabble in some ventures. He opened a saucy bakery in London called Cox Cookies and Cake, as in Cock Balls and Fanny, he explains helpfully, and designed shoes occasionally for other brands. But he had made enough money in fashion to not have to work very much at all, 
and in 2017 decided he needed another change. So he and his two bulldogs, Brutus and Caesar, moved to Ibiza, where he later got Titus. It was great at first, but then this cunt called Patrick Cox followed me out here, he says. He went into a severe depression, triggered when Brutus suddenly died in Ibiza while Cox was back in London for Kylie Minogue's 50th birthday. So I had that extra self-flagellation of feeling like, so not only has my dog died, but it happened while I was in London at a pop star's birthday, doing things I didn't want to be doing anymore. I mean, Kylie is a friend, not just some pop star, but yeah, I completely flipped out, he says. He talked to friends about wanting to kill himself. Elizabeth is so no-nonsense, so she was like, well, you are not doing that. Then, unbeknownst to me, she called David and Elton and said, I think we need to do an intervention. By now, Elton John has a long record of swooping in and packing substance-addicted celebrities off to rehab, sometimes successfully. Eminem, Rufus Wainwright, Donatella Versace, sometimes less so. George Michael replied to Elton's offer of assistance in an open letter, Elton John needs to shut up and get on with his life. Cox didn't think drugs were his problem, but he was grateful for any help, so Elton sent in the cavalry, which in this case meant his private plane. He knew I wouldn't leave Ibiza without Caesar, especially after what had happened to Brutus, so he very kindly sent the plane for us, he says, and he shows me photos on his phone of a nonplussed bulldog sitting in a private plane. When they landed in England, Elton's bodyguard drove off with Caesar in a Bentley to stay with the pop star and his family, and Cox was packed off to rehab. He pauses at this point and walks me around the side of his house. There, under a tree, is Caesar's gravestone, the bulldog who went on more private planes than I ever will. Next to that is the one for Brutus. Cox is still single and while he may struggle with accepting love from a partner, he has no such difficulties when it comes to his dogs, and he becomes a little tearful when talking about the ones that are gone. It is possibly no coincidence that it was when Caesar's health started to fail in the summer of 2019 that Cox discovered what he always calls toad. Rehab stopped Cox from killing himself, but he was too much of a cynic to buy into the 12-step programme. I kept saying, what is this, a moony cult? I understand you've saved millions of people's lives, but you do have a huge failure rate. There must be something more, he says. In the past decade, there has been an enormous amount of research into whether psychedelics can alleviate mental health conditions, especially depression, anxiety and PTSD. Of course, for every medical study proving the psychological benefits of LSD, you can find an anecdote about someone losing their mind after a bad acid trip. But the theory that psychedelics can be beneficial has definitely gone mainstream. Cox had always been sceptical about the grand claims people make for psychedelics. I thought it was people just wanting to be high, he says. But he tried microdosing LSD, and was amazed at the instant impact on his mental state. But, he complained to a friend, it aggravated his stomach. Maybe you should try some toad, his friend replied. 
Toad, or 5-MeO-DMT, is found in the poison of Bufo alvarius, a toad native to the Sonoran Desert in Mexico. To extract it, the toads are milked and the poison is then dried. And when it is smoked in a pipe, the heat burns off the poison, so don't go around licking toads unless you want to be poisoned. The milking doesn't hurt the toads, although it does potentially leave them defenceless against predators. But 5-MeO-DMT can also be made synthetically, and while some toad purists balk at that, Cox says the synthetic version is just as good as the natural version, but much stronger. Like all psychedelics, it is non-addictive, but it still comes with massive risks. A handful of people are known to have died from smoking toad and anyone with heart or kidney conditions or a predisposition to psychosis or schizophrenia should stay well away. It is extremely fast-acting and very strong, up to six times stronger than the better-known and similarly named hallucinogen DMT, which is why it has become known as the Mount Everest of psychedelics, as one best-selling book about psychedelics put it. Fans of Toad insist that, despite its reputation, it's a lot easier to handle than other hallucinogens. Unlike mushrooms and LSD, its effects only last for about 15 minutes, and, unlike ayahuasca, there is no vomiting and purging. They claim there is no hangover or come-down afterwards, but rather they feel clear-headed and calm. I heard about one 5-MeO-DMT fan who smokes at an hour before doing the afternoon school run, as if she were grabbing an extra latte. There is no evidence that smoking toad poison was part of any ancient indigenous tradition. Instead, it is a late 20th century discovery, and one that is now rocketing in popularity. Mike Tyson, of all people, said smoking toad has helped him to be more creative. It is illegal to possess and distribute 5-MeO-DMT in the US and UK, and it is illegal to supply it in Spain, and in recent years several people have been arrested there for hosting toad ceremonies. In 2020, several people, including the porn actor Nacho Vidal, were arrested after a photographer died at a toad ceremony in Valencia. Vidal was later charged for reckless homicide. He maintains his innocence. But there are a growing number of toad retreats on which the wealthy pay thousands of pounds to go to Central or South America, where toad is legal, to smoke it. It is likely that toad will go the same way ayahuasca has over the past decade. Not mainstream, exactly, but commodified, and something a certain type of person likes to tick off their bucket list, along with bungee jumping in Australia and off-piste skiing in Japan. It is, allegedly, already popular among Silicon Valley titans. In his 2018 book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics, the award-winning writer Michael Pollan says his experience of smoking toad was just horrible. But it also gave him a sense of relief so vast and deep as to be cosmic. Unlike with DMT, acid and mushrooms, you don't have visions. It's an experiential drug. You don't see things when you take it. You experience them, says Cox. And he experienced them so deeply that when he came round after taking it, he found that, for the first time in his life, I didn't hate myself anymore. There was nothing wrong with me. 
I'd never known that before, and now I did. Studies have shown that 5-MeO-DMT has a psychotherapeutic effect, with some people feeling greater life satisfaction after trying it. Cox smokes toad on average once a month, the way some people might go to church or mosque or synagogue, he says. Because toad is not about getting high, but healing and doing the work, exploring what toad shows him. I assumed that being a toad facilitator was someone who sells toad poison, a drug dealer, in other words, but it turns out to be more like a drug doula. He holds the space for people who smoke it, a psychedelic term for sitting with someone who was smoking and making sure they feel safe. Watching someone go through these huge transformations, there's nothing better than that, says Cox with feeling. He himself has gone through a huge transformation. His devotion to Toad was so quick and full-hearted that he was chosen by Cesar Reyes, a very experienced Toad facilitator, to be his apprentice. Reyes, aged 49, died last December from cancer. Memories of him spark even more tears from Cox than references to Brutus and Caesar. He no longer drinks alcohol or does any drugs, other than Toad, because, he says, they sever the feeling of connection he gets from Toad. When he visited Elton John and Furnish in 2019, they told him they hadn't seen him so happy in years, and he told them he had started smoking Toad. Well, I'm really glad we paid for you to go to rehab, Patrick, because it sounds like you're doing a shitload of drugs, the singer said dryly. But then he said, if you're happy, who am I to judge? Which I thought was just beautiful, Cox says. Some of his other friends are a little more sceptical. They're like, you call it doing the work and holding space, Patrick, but it's called taking drugs, he laughs, conceding the point a little. Before I flew to Ibiza, my editor expressly warned me not to go gonzo and smoke 5-MeO-DMT. But, I tell Cox, even after hours of talking to him, I still have so many questions about Toad. Like, doesn't he think he's simply substituted a more powerful drug for less satisfying ones? When he says that the world would be better off if everyone smoked Toad, is it possible that he has given himself brain damage from all these psychedelics? Cox is spending this autumn filming his documentary, even going to Mexico to see the toads. His commitment to spreading the word is impressive, but is he ready to give up his reputation as a talented shoe designer to be known as the crazy toad guy? No one was a bigger cynic than me about psychedelics, and sometimes I hear the stuff that comes out of my mouth now and I'm like, oh my god, shut up. But trying to explain toad to someone who has never taken it is like trying to explain sex to someone who has only ever watched it, he says. Pretty convenient fob-off, the sceptical side of my brain says. The curious part says, well, let's smoke some toad then. Firmly ignoring my editor's instruction, I find someone, who I'll call C, who has toad, and I ask Cox to come with me to see him and keep me safe, to hold the space. He replies firmly that I'll first have to answer some questions. After ascertaining whether I have any history of cardiac problems, depression or psychosis, none all round, he asks if I've had any alcohol or narcotics in the past three days. 
Whether I'm on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, a common kind of antidepressant, which combined with TOAD can lead to the potentially fatal serotonin syndrome, and if I'm just doing this to get high. I answer in the negative to all, so he agrees. I hand over €200 Euros of my own money to see, and he tells me to sit on a mat on the ground and to breathe through my mouth. He weighs a small amount of toe poison on a scale and puts it in the bulb of a glass pipe. Cox sits beside me and murmurs a blessing, touching each of my shoulders and my back, while C heats the bulb. As the poison smokes in the bulb, C tells me to take a deep inhale on the glass pipe. I think, am I really putting my life and my mind in the hands of Patrick Cox? And then... I don't think anything at all. I expected to see fractals, wavy lines, kaleidoscope colours, the things you might see on an LSD or mushroom trip. Instead, I fall into a darkness that goes beyond blackness, and my mind dissolves. This is what Toad fans describe as ego death. Somewhere, a bell rings and I fall deeper and fly higher, and then I experience something that I, normally hyperverbal to a fault, cannot describe. After an unknowable amount of time, 14 minutes it turns out, the blue sky appears in the darkness, fragment by fragment. Cox is holding my hand, telling me that I am safe. I feel terrified and ecstatic. I look at Cox, and as tears stream down my face, I hear myself say to him, in a voice that doesn't sound like mine, Now I understand. It's my last day with Cox, and we are back on his terrace. He's as chipper as ever, and I feel, well, great, clear-headed, calm and full of energy. Is this the toad, or just the effect of a trip to Ibiza? Cox says all psychedelic experiences are affected by the set and the setting, i.e. your mindset and where you're doing it. Certainly something has had a strong impact on me, because it no longer seems entirely ridiculous that I smoked toad poison with the man who used to make my loafers. Cox knows he has the zeal of a convert, and he tries to dial it down a little. When he first got into Toad, he grew his hair long, diving into the psychedelic look. Then a friend stood him in front of a mirror and said, Would you fuck you? Point taken, he hoots at the memory. Whatever Toad has done to him, it has not, thankfully, taken away his sense of humour. His focus now is to teach people how to do Toad safely, and to try to keep it accessible to anyone who wants it, not just the 1% crowd. I ask if he'll ever go back to fashion, and he recoils. Instead, he's thinking of opening an animal sanctuary. A part of him would like to be part of the psychedelic community, he says, but the same cynical mindset that resisted rehab pulls him away from joining this group too. There's a lot in that world that I don't agree with. I'm not a new ageist, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, he says easier just to explore things on his own without putting a label on it, he says. When I told a friend in the fashion world about my interview with Cox, they asked if I thought he had lost his mind. I don't. 
I think he's happy to have found a purpose, to feel needed after being adrift for so long, and I think he's relieved to feel as if there's something greater out there when he'd grown so jaded with the little world he knew. I also think there is something beyond explanation about Toad. For the week after I smoked it, I felt calmer and slept better than I had in years. The thought of smoking it every month, as Cox does, blows my mind almost as much as the Toad did. But doing it once a year, a kind of psychedelic MOT? That doesn't sound totally crazy to me anymore. It's entirely possible that Cox is at the forefront of a new understanding of psychology and neurology. It's also possible that he's another guy who went to Ibiza and dropped out, and those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Cox doesn't plan to smoke Toad forever, because the goal is to be able to access the feelings without the drug. People think change is only possible when you're younger, and who you are when you're 30, that's who you are forever, which is crazy, he says. When he was 30, he was a famous shoe designer. Now he's almost 60, and he's a toad facilitator. I don't know if we would all benefit from smoking toad poison, as he says, but I do think people would be happier if they had the freedom and the courage to keep evolving, as he has done, to not cling on to one identity, but to keep exploring and to not care if we look, maybe, a bit ridiculous. It's my last day, and Cox is wearing trousers with an image of Jesus on them and a T-shirt with a giant picture of a toad on it. It matches the charms on his necklace. I hug him goodbye and ask one last question. Doesn't he worry, just a little, about losing his mind on toad? Of course not, because I'll be happy he grins, and the golden toad around his neck glints in the sun. That was I'm Not a Shaman, I Just Want to Help People, shoe designer Patrick Cox on his psychedelic toad awakening, by Hadley Freeman, read by Colleen Prendergast. As a reminder, if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, We've included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast and Arazu Baker and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers were Nicole Jackson, Max Anderson and Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus. 
We're at the forefront of new technology. We're redefining the aerospace industry by using disruptive technologies and new energies to reduce our environmental impact. Okay, thank you very much. We're bringing the world together, collaborating, and acting on climate change. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at airbus.com.